Hello, everyone. This is Father Bill Nicholas, and this is Faith, Hope, and History. Greetings and welcome, everybody. It is Friday, January 20th, 2023. Traditionally, it is the day of Martin Luther King Jr., although we celebrated that as a nation and observed the holiday last Monday. It was on this day in 1649 that King Charles I of England was beheaded. An interesting thing to remember, as we are now in the beginning of the reign of King Charles III. And an interesting thing about those those three Charleses is Charles I was beheaded because he had a run-in with the parliament of which he was trying to assert his authority as king while disrespecting their role, and it was a power play between the two, between the monarch, the sovereign, and the representatives of the people at that time. His son, King Charles II, would come to power ten years later after the failure of the Commonwealth under Oliver Cromwell, And when he became king, it was under various parameters set down by the parliament. Things that led to what in England has now enjoying a constitutional monarchy. Not a pure monarchy, but a constitutional monarchy. And part of those developments occurred under the reigns of, or because of the reigns of Charles I and Charles II. And now we have Charles III, which... As Prince of Wales, some were concerned he was allowing his political views to show forth a little more, and perhaps we might see some of that give and take again with a Charles, not one that will result as it did in the case of King Charles I, or have a result as it did in the case of King Charles II, perhaps expansions of the reign of Charles II, expansions on the relationship between the monarch and the parliament. We may see some developments there. Who knows? Only time will tell But it was also on this day in 1801 that John Marshall, here in the United States, was appointed Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of the United States. And it was under his leadership that we would see such decisions as Marbury versus Madison, which helps to establish the role of the Supreme Court as the constitutional oversight committee, in a way, for laws that are passed and reviewed by the by the Supreme Court, it established the concept of judicial review of laws to determine whether or not they were or are constitutional. He would also be responsible for the decision that instructed the President of the United States, Andrew Jackson, to respect the treaties of the Indian tribes in the Georgia territories in the state of Georgia, to which Andrew Jackson would say, well, Marshall has made his ruling, now he can enforce it. And Simply, the president, again, acting as a check and balance on one branch of the, of the United States government, simply ignored their ruling, and the result was the trail of tears. But that's another historical issue, which perhaps might be worth reviewing on this uh, podcast, Faith, Hope, and History. But again, speaking of history, in 1824, on this day, the Confederate General Thomas Jackson, also known as Stonewall Jackson, was born. And in 1892, the first basketball game was played in Springfield, Massachusetts. Also, in 1981, on this day, the United States Embassy hostages held in Tehran, in Iran, 
after 444 days in captivity, were released shortly after President Ronald Reagan was sworn in as the 40th president and, at the time, the oldest president of the United States. He was 69 years and 349 days. That has since been surpassed. But at that time, Ronald Reagan began his first term on this day in 1981. And on the same day, the hostages being held in Iran were released back to the United States. But this weekend, we have in Washington, D.C., the March for Life, which is going to take on a different flair this year because Roe versus Wade has been overturned and the struggle for life has now gone from the national level to the state level. The Supreme Court in Dobbs versus Jackson overturned Roe versus Wade and subsequent abortion rulings mainly because abortion is not in the Constitution. Many would say that a woman has a constitutional right to an abortion, but abortion is nowhere in the Constitution. And therefore, because of the Tenth Amendment to the Constitution, which states, in sum, that if it's not explicitly delegated to the federal government and not explicitly forbidden to the states, then it's to be decided by the states. In other words, the people and their state governments will decide the issue of abortion in each of those states. Therefore, Roe versus Wade was overturned, and many would say it was bad law, not only because it allowed for the wholesale murder of millions of children, but it was an unconstitutional ruling. And for years, for decades, many politicians seeking to protect the uh, freedom, if you call it that, or a right, which it isn't, of a woman to abort a pregnancy, would assert Roe versus Wade as established precedent. And I remember back in 2006, in the weeks of February 2006, the state legislature of South Dakota passed a law signed by the governor. It was in early March, effectively banning almost all abortions in the state, the exception of being, of course, to save the life of the mother. Both sides of the issue, of course, prepared for the expected court battle that many pro-life advocates had hoped would eventually go before the Supreme Court of the United States in a direct challenge to Roe versus Wade, the decision of 1973. Now, of course, it would be over 15 years later when Roe v. Wade was finally overturned, but this was one of those cases that they were expecting would go to the Supreme Court as a direct challenge to Roe versus Wade. And as the press covered this impending conflict, focus inevitably turned to the two newest members of the Supreme Court at that time, Chief Justice John Roberts and Justice Samuel Alito. Of course, there have been other justices added to this court as well since then, but I'm recalling this occurrence in 2006. And of course, there was speculation on how they would affect the decision should the court agree to hear the case that was coming out of South Dakota. And I recall during the Senate Judiciary Committee hearings for both Roberts and Alito, as well as other usually Republican-appointed Supreme Court nominees, and the politicians who were concerned with the future of a woman's so-called right to abortion, repeatedly asking the potential justices if they, as members of the Supreme Court, would respect established precedent, or words to that effect. When cases came before them that might test decisions already made by the court, would they respect established precedent? 
And of course, in short, would they respect Roe versus Wade as established law? Now, they would use that term, established law. Now, right there, that's a fallacy. It's a fallacy. Because without getting into the obvious error that the judiciary does not pass laws, that's for the legislative branch of government. Thank you, high school civics. This is something we all should have learned in high school. Such a question raises interesting historical issues which are no less relevant today as we now see future challenges to other Supreme Court decisions perhaps uh, unfolding. We've seen the Supreme Court finally overturning Roe versus Wade last summer. What has been the Supreme Court's record in respecting precedent when important issues of justice and law have come before them? What would our country be like today if the Supreme Court had respected precedent across the board whenever they were presented a challenge to pass laws and pass Supreme Court decisions. What does it mean to respect precedent, and what would that mean for our country if the Supreme Court always, without question, respected previous decisions of the Supreme Court as established law or established precedents? Looking at just a few of the Court's most historical decisions might yield some interesting answers. For example... On March 6, 1857, the Supreme Court handed down its decision in the case of Scott versus Sanford, also known as the Dred Scott decision. Now, in this decision, the Supreme Court overturned a settled law of the land. That's another phrase we hear from politicians during Supreme Court hearings. It overturned a settled law of the land, the Missouri Compromise of 1820, which limited the spread of slavery in the territories. It also established precedent for our nation, declaring that even free Negroes, free slaves, did not have any rights that a white American was bound to respect. That was established precedent by the Dred Scott decision. Even free slaves, no person of African descent, had any rights that a white person was bound to respect. That's what was declared in the Dred Scott decision. Dred Scott did not even have the right to sue for his freedom in federal court because, and this is quoting from the decision, a man whose ancestors were imported into this country and sold as slaves, unquote, did not enjoy the same privileges reserved for citizens under the Constitution. This was an established precedent. However, this established precedent was later overturned by the United States Congress and effectively laid to rest by the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments to the Constitution. And especially in the 13th Amendment, prior to the 13th Amendment, slavery had not been dealt with by name in the Constitution, so that issue was left up to the states. But now with the 13th Amendment to the Constitution, slavery is explicitly prohibited in the United States by the Constitution. And of course, in passing the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, and by Congress pretty much overturning the Dred Scott decision, the people of the nation, through their representatives, declared the Supreme Court to be wrong in its decision, and therefore its decision is defunct. Yes, the Supreme Court made it, but the Supreme Court is not the supreme authority. It is one of three branches of government, and the other two, the executive and the leg legislature, the presidency and the Congress, are there to hold in check the power of the Supreme Court, just as the Supreme Court and the Congress hold in check the power of the president, and the president and the Supreme Court hold in check the power of the Congress, and believe it or not, the Congress has two houses, House and the Senate, 
that are there to keep each other in check. The only branch of government that has two houses, two chambers to keep itself in check. The presidency and the Supreme Court don't have that. But in the case of Dred Scott, we saw a law passed by Congress and signed by the president and three amendments approved by Congress and ratified by the states effectively told the Supreme Court what to go do with itself with regard to the established president of the Dred Scott decision. What would our country have been like if established precedent had been respected in that case? Another landmark decision that defined American society for over 55 years, the Supreme Court handed down another established precedent on May 18, 1896. And this decision was Plessy versus Ferguson. In Plessy versus Ferguson, the Supreme Court declared that having separate facilities for black people and white people was not a violation of the Constitution. Separate facilities for Africans and whites was not a violation of the Constitution, according to Plessy versus Ferguson. And as a result, the social doctrine of separate but equal became the law of the land, became a policy that maintained segregation in the United States well into the 20th century. This was a decision by the Supreme Court. And this established precedent was later challenged and overturned on May 17, 1954, when Brown versus Board of Education, the Supreme Court decision, Brown versus Board of Education, effectively overturned the separate but equal doctrine the day before the 58th anniversary of Plessy versus Ferguson. We're about to observe the 50th anniversary of Roe versus Wade. Well, Plessy versus Ferguson was overturned by the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court overturned itself in Brown versus Board of Education. And I think you can consider our country to be a better country for it, even though the Supreme Court and the justices of that Supreme Court in 1954 did not respect the precedent of the previous Supreme Court. But as people would say today, the Supreme Court has spoken, therefore the Dred Scott decision must be kept and the Plessy versus Ferguson decision must be kept. But no, no. Given these important cases from our history, how would our country be today had the Supreme Court respected established precedent as these nominees who come through, especially Republican nominees to the Supreme Court, are pressed to guarantee during their hearings of the, Judici the Judiciary Committee. Had the Dred Scott decision respected the precedent set by the Missouri Compromise, the Civil War may not have been averted, but slavery would not have spread as rapidly into the territories as they tried to have it spread. In addition, affirming the rights of at least freed slaves would have planted an important social seed Instead, all people of African descent were denied constitutional protections and our nation was pushed more rapidly toward a war with itself. Had the Dred Scott decision itself been respected as established precedent, then the deplorable denial of the rights of African Americans would have been perpetuated. So the Dred Scott decision itself did not respect established precedent and it was itself not respected as established precedent. Had the decision of Brown versus Board of Education respected the precedent set by Plessy versus Ferguson, we would perhaps still be living in a segregated society. And the downward spiral of inequality would have been further perpetuated by the courts affirming the doctrine and policy of separate but equal. Instead, 
the long and often tumultuous journey toward desegregation received the boost it needed that eventually led to the civil rights movement of the 60s and the great leaders it brought forth, like Martin Luther King Jr., and the results that that movement yielded. Would not have happened, perhaps, if the Supreme Court, in the case of Brown v. Board of Education, had upheld established precedent of separate but equal established by Plessy v. Ferguson. So now, we are in the aftermath of the overturning of another established precedent in Roe v. Wade, a precedent that pro-abortion advocates were so desperate to see respected by our judges that they conveniently ignore the monumental laws and decisions, both good and bad, in which the Supreme Court and lawmakers of the United States have blatantly defied precedent in the past, such as Dred Scott and Plessy v. Ferguson. Both of these were precedents that needed overturning and demonstrate that our courts are not bound by past decisions that either immediately or over time are recognized as being disgracefully unjust, or in the case of Roe v. Wade, just simply bad constitutional law. And so it was in that spirit that, on the occasion of the decision of Roe v. Wade, Governor Robert Casey of Pennsylvania stated, quote, Those who say we must learn to live with this decision still don't get it. Ultimately, Roe cannot survive alongside our endearing, unshakable sense of justice. It is no more permanent than any other act of human arrogance. It is no more unchangeable than the laws which sent Dred Scott back to his master. And Governor Casey was saying this about Roe versus Wade. He compared it to Dred Scott. The Chicago Tribune on March 7, 1857, reacted to the Dred Scott decision in words that could easily apply to Roe versus Wade. Here's what the Tribune said in 1857. Quote, We must confess we are shocked at the violence and servility of the judicial revolution caused by the decision of the Supreme Court of the United States. We scarcely know how to express our detestation of its inhuman dicta or fathom the wicked consequences which may flow from it. To say or suppose that a free people can respect or will obey a decision so fraught with disastrous consequences to the people and their liberties is to dream of impossibilities, unquote. That's the Chicago Tribune in reaction to the Dred Scott decision, and that could very easily have been a reaction to Roe versus Wade. And Governor Casey's words about Roe versus Wade could have easily been the comments made about Dred Scott or Plessy versus Ferguson. So it was in that vein that in 2006, South Dakota stood with Brown versus Board of Education. It was in that same vein that in 2022, the Dobbs case stood with Brown versus Board of Education as it directly challenged an established precedent. And we are grateful for the Supreme Court because it did not respect the established precedent of Roe versus Wade, but rather set a new precedent for our nation, which affirms the right of states to make decisions on matters that are not addressed by the Supreme Court. It affirms the right of the people to make decisions state by state on issues that are not addressed by the Constitution. And that way we the people will ultimately make the decision with regard to abortion.
up to and until such time as a right to life amendment is passed to the Constitution that hopefully will stand alongside the 13th Amendment, which bans slavery, a right to life amendment will nationally ban abortion. And we pray that this new precedent will deny all men and women the so-called right to kill the unborn, as it has now confined Roe versus Wade to the historical abyss where it has joined Plessy versus Ferguson and the Dred Scott decision as one of the most shameful errors of our highest court. But let's get back to the whole question of the issue of slavery as a comparison, because as we saw, General Casey and the Chicago Tribune respectively commenting on Roe versus Wade and Dred Scott. While, they, while the issues are different, the conflict is still the same. Slavery was an issue of property rights versus liberty rights. Roe versus Wade, as some would put it, would be a question of privacy rights versus right to life. And of course, our nation was torn into civil war over an issue that was left unresolved in the ratification of the Constitution, which, of course, is the issue of slavery. And for many, the issue had to do with the fundamental right to private property. To abolish slavery would be to violate the property rights of the slave owner. For others, it was an issue of the very meaning of human freedom, in which slavery violated a slave's fundamental right to be free. And the Dred Scott decision determined that a slave had no rights that a white person was bound to respect, even a free slave, a free person of African descent. And in the end, it took the unrelenting dedication of the abolitionist movement and ultimately the President of the United States to finally bring about the abolition of slavery in America. Now this Sunday marks the 50th anniversary, I believe, of that other monumental decision of the United States Supreme Court. And the issue is just as nationally divisive as was the issue of slavery. The Supreme Court in Roe v. Wade determined that a woman had a right to freely choose to terminate a pregnancy, killing her unborn child. And for some, the Supreme Court heralded a great breakthrough in the progression of women's rights. For others, it sounded the death knell for countless millions and became the key issue in the development of what many refer to as the culture of death. Those in favor of abortion on demand state that a woman's rights over her body, even perhaps especially over regarding a pregnancy, is fundamental to her freedom as a woman, while those opposed maintain that such an allowance violates one of the most basic rights we have as human beings. It has pitted against each other two ideologies that many see as fundamental as Americans. The right to privacy and the right to life. Now, of course, we've seen things come to a head over time, such as the Senate back in 2003 voting to ban the procedure known as partial birth abortion. The president signed the bill into law while pro-abortion advocates decried the vote, promising the, to push the issue again to the Supreme Court. And of course, we've seen governors in states supporting and signing state laws, severely limiting abortion, and pro-abortion advocates declaring that they're going to take it to the courts to challenge it. Now, there are many aspects of the issue of slavery that we're seeing and have seen replayed within the debate over abortion, and we'll see it replayed over and over again, no doubt, in the years ahead. 
For example, slavery was seen as essential to the economy of the South, just as abortion is seen as essential to the fundamental rights of women and, of course, a woman who wants to work. While the opponents of abortion believe in the unborn child's basic right to live, so too did abolitionists believe in the slave's fundamental right to freedom. Just as many argue that abortion is an issue of women's rights, so the advocates of slavery believed that theirs was an issue of the slave owner's property rights. And just as those who advocate abortion resent the imposition of religious values by those insisting that abortion is a sin and an evil, denying the humanity of the unborn child, so too did many of the pro-slavery South resent the religious insistence that slavery was morally wrong and denied that those of African descent are human beings of equal dignity before God. In fact, you may find this surprising, but there was once a young senator who from the floor of the Senate decried the Christian forces behind that movement that wanted to ban an institution that existed in this country. He said, Christian extremists are anti-American, trying to force their religious views on us, and they are violating the separation of church and state and threaten our country and its future. This young senator would eventually run for president under a banner and a slogan of hope and change. We all know who that is. I'm asking. You're right. It was Franklin Pierce over the slave issue, a senator from New Hampshire, who from the floor of the Senate said those words. But then we also hear it from other senators and other politicians today, basically the same argument. Abolitionists and anti-abortion forces are anti-American, anti-freedom, trying to impose a religious view on a nation and violating separation of church and state. So there are many similarities between the conflict of abortion and the conflict of slavery in our country. But our nation has a grand history of making strong distinctions regarding the rights of its citizens and how they relate to the rights of others. In the resolution to such conflicts, our society has always resolved that we as human beings have rights, but not the right to violate the rights of another. For example, a person has the right to swing one's arm or throw one's fist. However, that right ends where another person's nose begins. We have the right to free speech, but that right does not include putting people in danger by shouting fire in a crowded theater as a joke. Parents have a right to discipline their children, but not to the point of physical harm and abuse. We have freedom, but not to hinder the freedom of another. And the issue of slavery was resolved in that spirit. Our society does not deny property rights of any American until those property rights violate the rights of another human being to basic human freedom. Ergo, slavery is now constitutionally banned in this country. Then came Roe versus Wade. The basic difference between the issues of slavery and abortion is not in the issue nor in the nature of the debate, but rather in the outcome. That's the basic difference between those two. While our nation resolved the issue of slavery clearly against the socially dominant slave owner, Roe versus Wade resolved the abortion issue not in favor of the underdog and the helpless, the unborn child, but in favor of the absolute rights of the socially dominant woman who wishes to kill that unborn child. A complete reversal of values to how we resolved slavery in this country.
And the Dobbs decision last summer helped reverse that. So not only did it reverse a bad decision with regard to law and interpretation of the Constitution, but it set right a pattern we've seen in our country in which Roe versus Wade can be considered to be historically inconsistent with our nation's history of protecting the rights of those whose rights might otherwise be violated by another. While slavery is an issue that is very different from abortion, the conflict and debate over rights is very similar. Like the struggle against slavery, the abortion issue has grown into a debate over the very nature of rights and their relation to the rights of others. The Dred Scott decision and Roe versus Wade pulled our country in the wrong direction. Both of them needed correcting, and both of them were corrected, as was Plessy versus Ferguson. And it will take the ongoing dedication of the pro-life movement, and perhaps even another president, just as we had Lincoln with regard to the end of slavery. We had President Donald Trump who appointed the three Supreme Court justices who helped overturn Roe versus Wade. It may yet take another president and a series of governors to set our nation further on the proper course as state by state we deal with this question of abortion. To set our nation on the proper course once again as it did when the struggle of slavery was at its height. So we're very grateful for the Supreme Court in their decision, but that's not the end of the struggle for abortion. If we want to see a complete ban outright, we need to go state by state and make sure those laws are maintained, or we need to have another constitutional amendment passed, a right to life amendment. But the struggle for life goes on, and we will see people who are still and continue to be dedicated to that struggle gathering in Washington, D.C. for the March for Life and hope that just as we saw some states, like Indiana, last summer pass laws pretty much banning abortion across the board with very rare exceptions. And then we saw states like California pass a resolution in the last election that was pretty much Roe versus Wade on steroids We continue to see a struggle that is just as divisive of our nation and just as religious for our nation as was the struggle to overcome slavery. But if the history of our nation is any indication, the struggle will not be in vain and we'll see a renewal of the value that is expressed in our Declaration of Independence of an inalienable right to life endowed by our creator of which the government is there to protect not to ensure its destruction through state or federal taxpayer funds. So those are my thoughts on this, the 50th anniversary of Roe versus Wade coming up in a few months on the first anniversary of it being overturned. On faith, hope, and history, putting a bit of a historical perspective on this ongoing struggle to protect the right to life, even as we people of faith
in God and the value that every human being has made in God's image and likeness, even and perhaps especially the unborn and the vulnerable. Let's continue to pray for further success in that cause. And just as the Dred Scott decision was overturned, Plessy versus Ferguson was overturned, Roe versus Wade was overturned, the struggle didn't end there with each of those issues. Many people resisted, but eventually our country came around. So all the best of luck and success in the future to the pro-life movement, of which hopefully all of us will do what small part we can in teaching one another the ultimate value of human life and the absolute evil of taking the life of innocence. So those are my thoughts for this week. Thank you for listening, and with any luck, I will talk to you again soon. Thank you.